0: Well, long ago, I was told the story about a man who died and went to heaven, and while he was being given his orientation tour, uh, they neared a doorway of a large room, and there were kind of a lot of monotone words being repeated, and the guy asked, so, well, who's in there? And the guide replied, oh, that's the Catholics. Okay. Oh, okay. And before long, they neared a doorway to another large room. There was a lot of loud music, and there was shouting and dancing. And the man said, well, well, who's, who's in there? The guide replied, oh, that's the, the, that's the Pentecostals. It's like, oh, okay. And, and as they walked along, they neared the doorway of another large room where there was sounded like a lot of amens and some pulpit banging. And the guy asked, well, who's in there? And the guide, repli- guide replied, shh, those are the Baptists. And they think they're the only ones up here. I can say that because I come from a long line of Baptists in my family, Uh, but years ago at the age of 19, like most people, I believed in God. And I actually believed a lot of things about God, but I had created a version of God that I actually talked about this last fall in our Forgotten Ways series, a version of God that could be kept in a box, Uh, like the country singer Jelly Roll put it, until I need a favor. But at 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning broke out of the box that I'd kept him in, and into my life, and that moment changed things forever. And one of the things that changed was my personal vision for my life. It's hard to explain, but I just had in my gut this personal knowing that my future was to be one in which I dedicated myself to full-time ministry and inspiring as many people as possible to follow Jesus, that I was going to become a pastor. But the problem was, is I had no clue how to do that. I didn't grow up in going to church no one in my family had been a pastor or a priest or served in full-time ministry, but I figured you had to go to school and get trained and get a license, you know, like a plumber or an electrician or something. Uh, So I began doing my homework, which, by the way, involved going to the library because this was before everyone had a computer in their home. This was in the days of black screens with green characters and dot matrix printers and paper maps, by the way. It's like, and this was literally the year before the World Wide Web was officially invented. Like, it's a miracle that we got anything done, okay? But somehow, I began to gather names of potential schools and seminaries, and I began to make calls. And while it was a bit exciting and also a little bit scary, what caught me off guard was that it was also a bit discouraging. And, and what I mean by that is that as I, t- like any school or university that you engage as a candidate, inevitably they're going to ask you, well, what? What other schools are you considering? And I would tell them, and consistently, every single time, the person would give me reasons why the other schools weren't really up to par with what they taught, especially when it came to their understanding and their approach of big words like doctrine and theology and eschatology, and how that they were so much more correct, which is why I should attend their schools and, and not go to these other schools and that are subpar institutions. And to some degree, I get it. Okay, if a school or university thinks that you're a strong candidate, then they're going to do whatever they can to try and persuade you to attend their school and choose it over another. But there was just there was just something about the spirit of it. Uh, something there was just like this sense of divisiveness and even some unintended arrogance in the tone and the posture and how these individuals spoke to me about this and. For me, fresh into this passionate adult faith, focused on Jesus and filled with this thrill of helping as many people come to know and follow Jesus, this was my first moment of concern. And my moment of concern was about what version do I lead people into? What version of Christianity am I, because apparently there are all these versions, I the fact that these educated and informed Christians were criticizing and belittling the understanding and worthiness of other educated and informed Christians, it, it bothered me. It bothered me a lot. And, and it wasn't the first or, or the last time that I would encounter this. The whole reason that I didn't get to grow up into church was connected to this very same spirit of divisiveness and arrogance. So today we're beginning this very important series, and I'll just tell you, it was birthed from a partner church, and we're one of many churches joining together to bring this to our individual context in this series, The Fundamental List, which by the way, I love the title, The Fundamental List instead of The Fundamentalist, like you get that, uh, The Fundamentalist, Recovering the Essentials of Our Faith. And in this series, we're gonna attempt to answer an important question. And the question is this, what must one believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? Not what must one do, We talk about the do part all the time because doing is what makes the difference. Just believing doesn't make any difference at all. I believe that if I consistently, over the next month, decrease my calorie intake by 35%, I would be fully satisfied, sufficiently full, and I would lose 10 pounds by the end of the month. But if I don't act and do on what I believe, I'm going to be keeping this holiday season bonus for a while. so uh, But at the same time, what we believe does matter. In fact, there are a few things that are essential to know and believe if someone is to be a faithful follower of Jesus. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to answer the question, what's fundamental? What's essential? What is the irreducible minimum? And the reason this is important is because there is a lot of confusion about this. A lot of confusion about what one needs to believe because the Christian faith has become like this giant house made up of living rooms, large living rooms, and every living room has a large set of double doors out to the world and where all these living rooms are trying to invite people into their version of the Christian faith. And there's passageways between the different rooms because everyone is just people all the time are constantly changing churches or changing faith traditions, just sheep swapping. And each of these faith traditions, each version of Christianity, this denomination or subdenomination or independent church or each one of these comes with what you might call their own terms and conditions, Right? It's like they each have their own traditions. They each have their own expectations of how you're to behave. There's expectations in terms of how you worship, expectations when it comes to their own translations of the Bible, their interpretation of their own translation of the Bible. And there are only two things that these churches have in common. And the main thing that they all have in common is each one is absolutely confident that they are right, and everyone else is not right, or they're half right, or they're misinformed, or they're confused, or even misled. So the question is, what is, what is actually fundamental, or crucial, or required to believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? And maybe equally, if maybe not even more important, is the question, what is not fundamental, What is peripheral? What is cultural? What is traditional? As in, this is just the way we've always done church, but it's not necessarily fundamental. What's fashionable? What's just more trendy but not essential? Because if we're not careful, just as other generations and other denominations have done, we start to think, well, this is the way you do church, and to do it any other way is to do it wrong. What's fundamental? What's not fundamental? And very importantly, This last question, what's harmful? It's very important that we understand this, especially as we consider the current and the next generation. It's why we're going to spend a few weeks talking about this. Because if you're familiar with the phrase, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, this phrase actually comes, uh, its first known appearance was in in German. And it was in Thomas Merner's 1512 satirical writing called Appeal to Fools. And then there's a German poem, and it translates this. A fool thinks it's not a bad thing to spill the baby with the bathwater. It's as good to leap into hell as to slide into it. In other words, in your zeal to rid yourself of something unwanted or even harmful, the bathwater, don't accidentally rid yourself of something incredibly valuable and important, which ends up causing greater harm to leap or to slide into hell. And the reason this is so important is because too many, especially of the next generation, are throwing baby Jesus out with the bathwater. Because in every generation, going all the way back to the first century, new, novel, sometimes toxic, sometimes cruel, divisive, even dangerous practices and teachings and opinions have gotten and get woven into streams of Christianity. And these ideas are often elevated to the status of doctrine, or dogma, that this is what you have to do. Or theology, this is what God says. And non-essentials become essentials. And non-fundamentals get elevated and treated as fundamentals. And some of you, you've experienced this. Some of you have experienced this in church environments where essentials, were non-essentials were treated as essential. And this is what it means to be a real and be, to be a right Christian and everybody else is, is not. Many times, honestly, it's just completely made up. Like you're smart enough to sense it, especially if you've actually read the New Testament. But then, if you begin to question those things in that environment, then suddenly you're considered a fake Christian or you're an unfaithful church person within that group or that people or that denomination or that particular tradition. And the reason we know that some things aren't essential, and this is where we're going, is that when you actually hold them up to the life and the teachings and the behavior of Jesus. And what Jesus modeled, you hold it up against what Jesus prioritized, what he did not prioritize. As we're going to see, it becomes clear to you. It's like, hold on. It's like, that, that doesn't reflect Jesus. Like That's even some sort of add-on. Or it's just made up or it's misplaced. That, and these, these things are just simply not modeled or taught by Jesus. In fact, many times they're the opposite. Sometimes they're unchrist-like. Sometimes they're even worse. Sometimes they're anti-Christ-like. And the reason that throughout history, all the way back to the third century, these things have caught on and gotten woven into certain facets or certain traditions of Christianity is because these new or these novel ideas, they appeal. They appeal to a group of individuals or to a group of individuals' self-interest in their current culture. They, they confirm and they fuel some sort of bias or a cultural movement, or as we've seen in a very painful way recently in our lifetime, sometimes it's because they support a political agenda. And the thing that makes it so difficult to weed and they call it out is because 100% of the time, the leader or the leaders who create or they support these non-essentials, they've got verses of scripture in the Bible to back it up. And they stand up and say, well, the Bible teaches, and God says, and sure enough, if you look at their interpretation of their cherry-picked Bible verse, they've found a way to support these new or these different ideas, and so, therefore, to not go along with these ideas, you're actually going against Scripture, which means you're actually going against God. But when you actually open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you follow through the Gospels, you begin to realize, you know, my view may conflict with your view my view doesn't necessarily conflict with what I see in Jesus. And I want to clarify something that I feel like for most people, this, this isn't about malicious intent. The, the, I think it's just human nature that we gravitate towards those places where we feel we connect, we feel that we belong, where I'm accepted the most. It's natural to gravitate towards the ideas that connect with and even serve my temperament or my purposes the most. And if somebody can put a chapter and a verse to a certain idea, then that I'm already attracted to, then it's like, well, then I'm in. But oftentimes, these approaches, these practices, these new or novel or these trendy ideas, they may click with me personally, but then if I hold them up against the teachings of Jesus and what Jesus modeled, they begin to fall short. And if we pay attention, we begin to realize that these ideas justify and encourage a tone and a posture and an approach of life an approach to others that's anything but Christ-like. And again, for some of you, this has been your experience. This is your story. You were in a particular church environment, or you were around a certain group of religious people, and you began to feel uncomfortable. It's like, you know, I'm I'm just not really so sure about that. I'm not really sure that's what Jesus would do. I'm not really so sure that's how Jesus would behave. And for many, they feel they have no choice that i have to i have no choice but to leave the church and then if they leave a church that represents a version of christianity and that's the only version of christianity they know they feel that they have no choice but to leave christianity altogether and this is happening all the time again especially for the next generation which means in their zeal to to rid and separate themselves from something unhealthy or harmful they unintentionally separate themselves from something incredibly valuable and important. It's a story I've heard so many times. In fact, this is my story. Again, I've I shared how I was my single dad had an experience when I was a child, and the end result was that he would not have anything to do with organized religion. His exact words as we walked to the car on that particular day when I was eight years old was, screw the church. And then for the next several years, other than a wedding or funeral, he wouldn't step foot in one. Even a few years later, when I was 14, and I'd been given a Bible for my birthday, and if you'd know me at 14, you would know why somebody gave me a Bible for my birthday. And I began walking to church a few blocks away, because I was curious, I was fascinated, and and almost every Saturday night, I would invite him to join me the next morning on Sunday morning, and his answer every Saturday night would be, maybe next week. And next week never came. Maybe my story brings to mind a family member or a coworker, or a friend who they're just so resistant. And maybe you do on a regular basis what I encourage you to do every single week, to invite someone to join you at church, to come and sit with you. And, and you tell them, like I, I, like, I know this was your experience. Our church is different. My church is different. But every time it's like, well, maybe next week or maybe next time or maybe it's just flat out No. I'm never stepping foot in church again, which is a side note. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up investing in and inviting and praying for these people in your life. It took my father many years, but the day finally came that God finally broke through in a life-changing, healing way, something I had almost completely given up hope on but it may take time. Something happened in their past, and they chose to distance themselves from something harmful and unwanted. And I personally know men and women who have been harmed, hurt, violated in the worst of ways by religious leaders or religious people, who for them represented the church, who represented God, and they said, because of that, I'm done. But in doing so, they unintentionally walked away from something valuable and important. But a lot of people, they don't leave the faith. They just leave the church, right? They deconstruct their faith. And again, this may have been you at one point or another. It may be you now. It's like you believe in God and you even still hold Jesus in high esteem. In fact, you haven't really changed your beliefs about God and Jesus. It's just this, this whole organized religion and church tradition struggling with it. It just doesn't seem to line up. And now you just kind of find yourself in no man's Land trying to figure out, but what is? what is fundamental? What is essential? And what's not? Because you're pretty comfortable or pretty confident, that you know in this other environment, like if that's how I have to treat people to be a Christian. Especially those who aren't a Christian. I'm not sure I can be a Christian. Or I can't be that kind of Christian. Or I just don't think that Jesus would treat people that way. And I just want to affirm you in in, in saying that a church or a faith tradition, a faith that can't be questioned, can't be trusted. And you need to know what's essential. So I'll go ahead and give you the first fundamental that you hang on to. You hang on to baby Jesus. Jesus. Now, if I say sweet baby Jesus and you laugh because you know Ricky Bobby's prayer, you need to repent. <laughs> but we just had Christmas, right? It's all about baby Jesus. And even if you feel like you're having to let go of everything else, don't let go of baby Jesus. In fact, at New Life, in our community, we say it very succinctly one of our other core values, Zan touched on two this morning. Our first and foremost is a statement it's all about Jesus. And everything we say and do, it's all about Jesus. Because that's the core. That's the foundation. Because here's what makes this difficult. Traditionally, the church has not left space for people's faith to grow up. What I mean is, in most cases, churches haven't created space in which people can question and wrestle with their faith, what it looks like to follow God, to be able to learn to grow, to mature, even though physically we get it, right? Physically we understand. We have to learn how to like roll ourselves over and learn to crawl, learn to walk, speak, feed ourselves. Yet spiritually, most churches they've kind of missed, there's the same application or experience when it comes spiritually, most church traditions often mitigate against allowing people's faith to grow up and mature. Because every church tradition has a box, and inside this is our God box, and this is the box that God fits in, and this is how God operates. And so if you don't, from day one, embrace that, then, and then from day one of your faith, operate exactly the way that a fully mature God-in-our-box person operates, then you're not a God person, or you don't fit here, you don't belong here. You need to go somewhere else. And everybody has their box, just like I did, especially in the early in my faith. But at some point along the way, all of us have questions. All of us should ask those questions because a faith tradition or a faith that can't be questioned can't be trusted. And our goal from day one has been for this to be a community, new life, where questions are encouraged, not just welcome. And that while living within your question, you can still find belonging, that you can belong before you believe, and you can belong as you are on this journey of discovering what you believe and why. And maybe sometimes you're deconstructing, sometimes you're reconstructing. But sadly, this isn't always the case in many faith communities. Karen Armstrong, she is a brilliant writer and speaker. She was deeply invested within her particular Christian tradition, but then she had a terrible church experience as a young girl uh, when she was young. And consequently, she stepped away from organized religion, organized Christian religion. But she's written, she's written a lot about world religions, and I've shared this quote before. She once wrote, many of us have been left stranded with an incoherent concept of God. We learned about God about the same time as we were told about Santa Claus. But while our understanding of the Santa Claus phenomenon evolved and matured, our theology remains somewhat infantile. And I believe that's largely because the church has done a poor job of creating space for people's faith to grow up and mature. And a faith that is not allowed to grow up will eventually be deconstructed, either intentionally as the person decides to step out and ask questions, or eventually, because a childish Sunday school faith cannot hold up under the rigors of adult life in the real world. So either we do it, or life does it for us. You go to church, and it's like, you know, God, God parted the Red Sea, and the good guys, they go through, and then the Red Sea closed up and killed all the bad guys, and that God will do that in your life. It's like, Really? Because I feel like the sea is closing up on me. I feel like the bad guys are winning in my life. And every time I ask a question, people look at me, and they say something to the effect that something's wrong with your faith. You just don't have enough faith. Maybe there's some secret sin in your life. I don't know. But I feel like I'm the one who's drowning. And I was told that I was like David, where my circumstances and my fears and my relational issues and my financial issues and my health issues, they're like Goliath. But if I have just enough faith, if I have enough faith and I just face my Goliath, God is going to give me victory like he gave David. And the, but in my life, the Goliaths are winning. And I am losing. Or how about this one? I've heard this quoted a thousand times, but I'm old. You've likely had this quoted to you if you grew up in the church. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you plans to give you hope and a future, and some haven't heard the rest. You will call on me, come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. And you're like, really? Because I've prayed and prayed and prayed, and prayed, and prayed, and I have no indication that God is listening or even aware. I feel like I have sought Him with all of my heart. So this must be a lie, because I still feel overwhelmed. I feel anxious and depressed. I feel brokenhearted. I I am not prospering. I do not feel hope. I don't sense God anywhere. I feel trapped. I feel captive by my overwhelming circumstances. This isn't working for me. But you need to know, if this is you or has been your experience, that you, you're not alone. In fact, you should begin or read anew the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and follow Jesus through the Gospels, because what you discover is that He interacted and interfaced with people just like you and me, constantly. In fact, Jesus went out of His way to interact, to talk with people for whom the religious system and the promises that they were made were not working out for them. So if you ever find yourself at odds with the tradition that you were raised in or with what you were taught, you're not sure it lines up with reality or with Jesus, you are not alone. There is nothing wrong with you. It's good to ask questions. And maybe you have stepped back, but the good news is that Jesus' closest followers were constantly asking questions And if you're listening to me right now, it means in some way you're still leaning in as well. So in this series, we're going to do our best to just strip Christianity down to the essentials and to ask the question that I mentioned at the beginning, what must one believe to be a faithful follower of Jesus? What is essential? What's not? In other words, what's baby? What's bathwater? So in the few minutes that remain, we're going to jump to the first one to get teed up for next week. To do that, I want you to just use your imagination. We're going to go back to 30 AD. So there's no church, there's no Bible, there's no New Testament hymns, no choir, no Christian uh, systematic theology. There's just the law and the prophets. There's Torah, there's priest. there's the temple, there's a Roman occupation. And then there's this unusual rabbi from Nazareth. It just seems to gather a crowd anywhere he goes, and he tells some things that are helpful, and then he tells some things that are confusing. He seems to be confronting the status quo and calling out the corruption of the temple and the entire religious system. There are some people who love him, some people who hate him, and some people that are just confused by him. And about two and a half years into Jesus's ministry, we find him and his 12 disciples about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, in a region called Caesarea Philippi, it was originally called Philippi because Herod the Great named it after his son Philip. And then, when Philip took control, he ended up renaming that particular region after Tiberius Caesar. So it ended up with two first names, Caesarea Philippi. And if you grew up in church, uh, you need you know that's where this conversation takes place. And maybe that dual name maybe that's what sparked the conversation for it to take place when and where it did. And if you've been around New Life for a while, you've heard this before. So, but I want you if you could for just a moment to forget. To forget what you know. Pretend like you like this is 3 Sundays later. I don't know what Chad preached 3 weeks ago. So, just isolate this story for a minute and just sit in it fresh. Because we're about to discover the first and most important fundamental of the Christian faith. So they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi, a place with a complicated history, with two names, and Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And in asking this question, Jesus gives himself a title that's actually found in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, because Daniel, in his book, he talks about the Son of Man, As an individual for whom God is going to give the authority to judge all the nations of the earth. So this is a big responsibility. And Jesus gives himself this title, which means he's either extremely arrogant or insane or he was correct. And Jesus asked a question that's fundamental. What is the word on the street about me? Who do people say I am? And getting the answer to this question is fundamental. It's essential. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have asked it. Our version of this question would be, who do you think Jesus is? This is a question everyone needs to ask. Here's how they reply. Some say a reincarnated John the Baptist who had been recently beheaded. Some say Elijah, who died a long time ago, or Jeremiah, who died a long time ago, or one of the other dead prophets. In other words, Jesus, people think that you're one of these reincarnated prophets Or that you come back in the spirit of somebody who died a long time ago. And Jesus is like, well, what about you guys? About two and a half years have gone by. You've been with me. Who do you think I am? And again, this was a very important question. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have asked. This is fundamental to our faith. And again, it's the question every single one of us and every single person that you care about should ask. Simon, because he was always the first answer... I relate. Simon Peter answered, "You are the Messiah, the son of the living God." And Jesus replied, "Do not get carried away, Peter. Seriously, who do you think I am?" No, some of you know that's not what he says. But remember if you if you know the story, we're trying to block out everything else that you know. We're in this moment for the first time. Peter's answer is huge. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In other words, I believe that God has chosen you to be the final eternal king of the entire human race. That you are his son. Because it's a dynasty, and King God, who is king, made you his king. He has anointed you as king. So I don't believe that you are a Messiah. I believe you are the Messiah. I believe that in some unique way you are God's son, come from heaven, in a body now, standing out in the sun with sandals on and simple clothing, walking wherever you go. And just to pause a moment... Regardless of your background or your faith system, regardless if you're Christian or not, I just want you to think for a minute. What if Peter is right? What if that's true? What if that is who Jesus is? God's final, eternal king of the entire human race. Shouldn't the entire population just stop and stare i mean he made this claim which anyone could make but then to remove any doubt that he was telling the truth to punctuate and validate his claim he predicted that he would be falsely accused he would be arrested he would publicly be publicly tried and tortured and executed and then three days later be seen again alive. And hundreds of witnesses confirmed that this is exactly what happened. And many of whom were executed, not for what they believed, but for what they saw. A man who defeated public torture, execution, and entombment three days after his death, and in, entombment. People shouldn't, shouldn't people just be like, okay, just everybody else be quiet. Just Jesus, you talk. Like, Because if you're God's final eternal king for all of mankind, God's representative to represent and reflect Him to the entire human race on earth, then everything you say is just as if God is talking through you to us. What if that's true? That He is in fact Lord. He is in fact King. Our King. Our everything. It, it means that acknowledging who Jesus is and getting it right is everything. It is the foundation. It is the foundational fundamental. It means that Jesus is not a reference point. Like at some point in my past, I believed in Jesus or I said I pray, prayed a prayer and I checked that box. It's not even, you know, I checked that box and then I chose to be baptized and I checked that box. No. Jesus is Everything. He is our final and eternal King, our Commander, our Lord, who becomes the center of everything. I mean, think about it. Anything Jesus said, it is as if God is speaking. And many of His words were recorded and documented for us in many later editions in red letters, which means if you possess a Bible in print on paper or in digital form, you possess in your hands the literal words of God. Do we really grasp the magnitude of that? Would you like to hear God speak? Would you like to know what God thinks about you? Would you like to know what God thinks about those around you? What He thinks about life? How to live life? about life after this life, about how God views your fears and your anxieties. Jesus walked around on planet earth and said, I am here so that you can know. Jesus doesn't blink or dumb it down or back off. He says, he leans in and he he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter, you're insightful, but you don't have that much insight. And I am in fact God's final and eternal king. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Peter, you are exactly right. You are in the presence of God's final and eternal king. I am God's unique son. And in that moment, they believed in him. But in time, they would unbelieve. And do you know why they would unbelieve? Because like us, they too had a God box. And in their God box, God always wins. God's Messiah always wins. And when Jesus was crucified, the narrative no longer fit their box. So they took their own box, they ran, and they hid in fear, and they unfollowed Jesus. And yet, these are the same men that a few days later bring us the message of who Jesus really is. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, they realized our box was too small. Our box was misinformed or too traditional. We had no idea what God was really up to. But when Jesus rose from the dead, all of that changed. And they refollowed and they changed the world. They are why we are here today. Right before the holidays, in my own personal study time, I was in the book of Luke. And I read something that struck me fresh and new. I had missed the significance of it my entire life. I have never read a book or heard a preacher or a teacher talk about what I identified for the first time in my life. That in the Gospels, that there was in fact one person and one person only who understood that Jesus' crucifixion was the beginning, not the end, who I believe might have been the single person outside the tomb Easter morning had they been given the chance. I might have a prize for the first of you who could raise your hand and tell me who that person was. It was one of the criminals crucified beside Jesus. Luke records this for us. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, and don't miss this. i missed this my entire life, so you guys are going to be smarter way earlier than I was. He said this to Jesus. He said this to another man, also nailed to a cross, covered in blood and filth, skin hanging off of him because of the flogging that he experienced. He's about to die at any moment, and yet this man looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And it hit me, this, one, this man was the only man to realize that Jesus' death was the beginning. This man who was the worst of the worst, he came to believe the one thing most essential to believe about the best of the best and who he was. And according to Jesus, that faith saved him. This declaration that you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is the only thing that the larger church has ever agreed on consistently since the beginning. Not the way we baptize, or do communion, or sing, or traditions, or confess. Like everything else is a free-for-all in terms of everything else. This is the only thing that the church has agreed on from the beginning. It is the foundational fundamental. It is essential. The one statement, the identity of Jesus organizes and prioritizes everything else. It's why nearly every single morning I wake up and I either read or I listen to something that Jesus said or something that the people who knew Jesus said about him. I mean, why wouldn't you? Maybe the better question is, why don't you start? I mean, what's more important What could be more important or more significant than to start your day every single day hearing from the voice of God, from God's final and eternal king? So the first on our fundamental list is this. Number one, because we're going to create an actual list. Jesus is God's son and our king. Let's just say that out loud. Jesus is God's son and our king. One more time. Jesus is God's son and our king. If you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus, that is the starting point, that Jesus is who he claimed he was. And I don't want to jump the application because this series is all about believe, uh, I just, but I just need to throw this out. If that's who Jesus is, then what else could we do than submit? What else should we do but, but worship? What else should we do but say, yes, Jesus Because if God sent his son into this world because he loved the world, because he loved you, and if he sent his son into the world to pay a sin debt that you could not pay for yourself, and Jesus is God's perfect, final, eternal king, what else do we do but bow down and worship and surrender and to use Jesus' word, follow? So it's imperative that we understand and accept and submit to Jesus as God's son and our king, because if you are clear about that, you're pretty much good to go. Because as we're going to discover that over the next few weeks, everything else flows from that. And if you get this right, everything else is pretty much detail. But it's important detail. We're going to look at those details starting next week in this fundamental list the recovering the essentials of our faith. Let me pray for us. Father, you are... We're just so grateful that we have the text and have the words that we have, for those that were willing to lay down their lives to make sure that we could have and understand in our own language these texts. And I pray, Father, over the next few weeks that, especially for those of us that have been confused or overwhelmed by all the messages and sometimes mixed messages of what it means to be a Christian father, I pray that you would declutter all of that and that you would lead us to clarity into this the simplest understanding of what it means to follow you and to serve the one who gave his life for us. So Father I, I pray all these, all these things for all of us and each of us in the name of Jesus. Amen.